0: I think he's trying to create circumstances which will make the survival of his regime and his own safety possible. Frankly, after our behavior internationally, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, I don't think anybody would take uh, guarantees against an American effort at regime change seriously. Given North Korea's
1: history of duplicity, of entering into agreements for tactical gain, and breaking the agreements that they do enter into, I do think that a strong approach will continue to be necessary.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network,
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have a couple of books out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. My co host Bob Ambrosi is away on business today. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud based practice management software makes it easy to manage your firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C L I O.com. On June 12, 2018, President Donald Trump met with Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore for the first summit meeting between the leaders of the two countries. After a history of tense relations between the countries, the two signed a joint statement agreeing to security guarantees for North Korea. According to the sources, these guarantees would include peaceful relations, reaffirmation of the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, recovery of soldiers' remains, and and follow up negotiations between high level officials. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the Trump-Kim summit, take a deeper look inside the agreement, denuclearization, and what this means for the United States and North Korea relations. And to do that today, we've got a great lineup for you. Our first guest is Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr. He's a senior fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Ambassador Freeman is also a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense, ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the operations of Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He was also the acting Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and a charge affairs at both Bangkok and Beijing. He began his diplomatic career in India, but specialized in Chinese affairs. Ambassador Freeman was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's visit to Beijing in 1972. And welcome to the show, Ambassador Freeman.
0: Very happy to be here.
3: And our next guest today is Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law, Morse Tan. Professor Tan was a Supreme Court Fellowship finalist and a Chicago Council on Global Affairs Emerging Leader. His work on North Korea has been received by the United Nations Commission of Inquiry, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, the South Korean ambassador to the United States, and the United States Assistant Secretary of State who led negotiations with North Korea. And if I've read his resume correctly, he's also the person who's written the most law review articles on North Korea. So welcome to the show, Professor Tan.
1: Glad to be on it.
3: Professor Tan, perhaps we can start with you and get a little bit of background. I mean, we've all heard about the ups and downs of the summit, how it got started, wasn't going to happen, and then did happen. But kind of give us a summary of what came out of the agreement and, and actually how it got to that point.
1: I believe that it got to this point due to the very strong, robust uh, approach that was taken that includes the amassing of military assets in and around the peninsula, includes the sanctions that were put forward by the United Nations Security Council, as well as the United States, and also the implementation, which has been a key point of uh, many of the sanctions, especially by China, to the extent that it did so. And there were steps that it took that were unprecedented, but there were also instances where satellite imagery seems to say that it wasn't entirely upholding the sanctions. And so because the sanctions have been biting, because Kim Jong-un is potentially afraid for his life, he was willing to come to the table. It wasn't in the usual pattern that North Korea Puts forward The pattern that North Korea usually follows was interrupted by the approach that the U.S. took in that North Korea uh, engages in saber-rattling brinkmanship in that they precipitate a crisis, get to the table who they want, negotiate benefits, swallow those benefits, break the agreement, um, and then repeat the cycle. It was not that way. There was a sort of interruption of that approach and a sort of flipping of that approach so that uh, they came to the table on different terms and in a different manner than before. North Korea was very motivated, so when when the President of the United States turned down the summit and said it wasn't going to happen, there was a large envelope that Kim Jong-un had delivered to the White House where uh, North Korea insisted on coming back to the table which was, um, there was an open door for that even in the declining of the summit earlier. So, those are the things that led up to it. I actually don't think, you know, the agreement itself has things like the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, the returning of uh, Korean War veterans, their remains, and for the Secretary of State Pompeo to engage in in this further, but rather than the content of the agreement, I actually think what is more important is how things go moving forward in terms of how steps are taken. And given North Korea's history of duplicity, of entering into agreements for tactical gain and breaking the agreements that they do enter into, I do think that a strong approach will continue to be necessary. And so the fact that the U.S. has not drawn down military assets from the area and also the sanctions remaining in place and over 300 sanctions um, being prepared to be implemented if necessary, I think those elements are very important in order to strongly encourage North Korea to move forward along this path.
3: Ambassador Freeman, let's talk about the agreement itself. What actually is this? It's not a treaty. It seems to be some kind of an executive agreement. And then what's actually been agreed to?
0: Well, the agreement is basically aspirational. It's uh, nothing that can be implemented in and of itself. I take a somewhat different view of how and why this uh, summit happened and what it means. Uh, Basically, I think uh, in Kim Jong-un, we have someone very different from either his father or grandfather. We've got to remember that the Korean problem, which is the source of uh, North Korea's search for a nuclear deterrent, which we have been trying to deflect. The Korean problem began with the division of Korea between U.S. and Soviet spheres of influence after World War II. June 25, 1950, North Korea tried to reunify Korea by force. and Nobody would have cared if that weren't also the border between the U.S. and the Soviet sphere. So we saw it as an attempted breakout by the Sino-Soviet bloc, the alliance between China and the Soviet Union. And we responded accordingly. And uh, after several years of uh, to-and-fro warfare, savage warfare, on the peninsula, which killed a lot of Koreans and not a few Americans and many Chinese, uh, we ended up pretty much at the 38th parallel where we had begun. Uh, China withdrew in 1959 from North Korea. The U.S. is still in South Korea. But uh, I think Kim Jong-un took a look at this situation. His grandfather had tried to use force to unify Korea. His father uh, had tried to intimidate South Korea and get attention, as Professor Tan said, by causing trouble from time to time. I think uh, Kim Jong-un took a look at this situation and said to himself, you know, my highest objective is regime survival. And this regime is not going to survive in competition with South Korea. It's lost the competition with South Korea politically and economically. It's isolated. South Korea is a major uh, middle-ranking power in the world. South Korea, the first time I went to it in, 19, in the early 1980s, had an economy that uh, despite having twice the population was the same size as North Korea's. It's now 50 times larger than North Korea's economy. So I think Kim Jong-un changed strategy and his strategy is to achieve regime survival in the following manner. Make peace with South Korea, reform the economy, open up to South Korean and Chinese investment, make the situation in the peninsula such that A U.S. military presence is no longer necessary. Deal with the U.S. in the meantime by maintaining a nuclear deterrent for as long as possible, uh, while uh, war becomes less and less thinkable and likely on the peninsula. And I think he went to Beijing to tell Xi Jinping, I have a strategy that can get American forces off your doorstep in Korea. All I need from you is to help me handle Mr. Trump. So he we went to Singapore on June 12th, met Mr. Trump. But he'd, before that, he'd met Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, and reached an agreement, somewhat more detailed and concrete, uh, on peace talks, talks toward a peace treaty between South and North Korea, economic cooperation and so forth. And I think we're on very different tracks now. U.N. sanctions will be respected by China. Unilateral U.S. sanctions will not be. And in a sense, South Korea, although Mr. Moon has been very careful at every step to flatter Mr. Trump and give him credit for all these developments, uh, South Korea's position is entirely inconsistent with maximum pressure on North Korea. It doesn't help in this context, by the way, that... Mr. Trump, without informing or consulting with South Korea, announced the suspension of joint exercises with South Korea and added that if he had his way, he would like to withdraw forces from South Korea. Now, he hasn't withdrawn forces. Suspensions can be reversed. Things could go very bad. But I think what we need to watch and should have been watching from the beginning was Mr. Moon and Mr. Kim, not Mr. Trump and Mr. Kim.
3: Professor Tan, what are the cultural differences between the Koreas and the United States that we as Americans need to be aware of, but most likely aren't?
1: Well, there are various differences. Let me say, first of all, that North and South Korea have diverged in most ways in that the economic systems, although North Korea reportedly is allowing more market activity than it ever has, but uh, historically, economically, Politically, even linguistically, where North Korea has tried to eliminate all Korean words that have etymologies in Chinese, for example, more, most commonly, but from any other source, uh, such as English, technological terms, for example, the two Koreas have diverged dramatically. In spite of the huge differential economically that Ambassador Freeman correctly notes, the population isn't that far apart, but uh, the South Korean population is a bit more than double the population of North Korea. But in general, if I were to um, venture a generalization, there are a number of cultural differences that I would point out. One is in terms of communication being more explicit and direct in the U.S., where it tends to be more implicit, and indirect in a number of Asian cultures. There's also a greater weight placed on saving face in uh, Asian cultures that do tend to be more shame-based. The U.S. tends to be more individualistic. Uh, A lot of these Asian cultures tend to be more collectivist. Uh, These are just a few cultural differences that I would point out.
3: Well, gentlemen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
0: Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, Clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10.
3: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who's a senior fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs and professor of law at Northern University College of Law, Professor Morse Tan. And immediately before the break, we were talking about some cultural differences between uh, the United States and, and some of the Asian countries. But as we mold those kind of cultural differences into understanding what happened, Professor Tan, what do you think of the goals? Are they realistic as they've been mentioned in the, in the agreement and particularly of interest to us out here in California? What's the denuclearization possibilities?
1: Craig, I think that North Korea would denuclearize and also eliminate their weapons of mass destructions of other kinds, such as their biological and chemical weapons stockpiles, if there is very strong pressure to make them think that they must do so. And uh, this is based on history. Now, if Ambassador Freeman is correct, and they are fundamentally on a different track, and that they are not pursuing the historic objectives that they've had, which namely are the three overarching ones, are to promote positive sentiment towards them in South Korea, to get the U.S. uncommitted to defending South Korea, and then to take over the peninsula by force, as Kim Jong-un's grandfather uh, attempted, as Ambassador Freeman mentioned. If they are on a different track, it may be a different story, but historically, they would not willingly and eagerly uh, let go of these weapons, which they have not done in the past, in spite agreeing to do so repeatedly uh, in the past, whether it was the '94 uh, Agreed Framework Geneva Protocol or whether it was denuclearization declarations and so forth, despite all the times that they have indicated that they would do so, they've only taken token steps. Destroying a cooling tower that they could restore the following week was not – Complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of their nuclear weapons as as the popular saying goes, so I don't think that North Korea would eagerly, quickly, willingly do so unless they believe they must and are in essence uh,
0: strongly pressured to do so.
3: Ambassador Freeman, do you agree? Do you think we've been played?
0: Uh, We may have been played, but if we've been played, it's by both Koreas, uh, not uh, just by uh, one of them. I don't agree that uh, maximum pressure is likely to produce denuclearization. I know of no instance in which any country has given up uh, its nuclear programs as a result of uh, overt pressure. The only case we have of a country actually giving up nuclear weapons um, was South Africa Ukraine made a bargain after the end of the breakup of the Soviet Union to give up the the part of the Soviet arsenal that it uh, possessed. Uh, But these were uh, very different circumstances from that prevailing in North Korea. I think North Korea is likely to play out the denuclearization issue as long as it can in order to retain a deterrent against American attempts at regime change. And uh, I think uh, it will... Uh, try very hard now uh, to enlist South Korea as a partner in the reform of its economy. It's very interesting, going back to the cultural question, when Deng Xiaoping in China began uh, his program of eclectic modernization, borrowing from outside uh, to change China, he drew first on overseas Chinese, primarily in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, who had a strong affinity with the motherland and who were very modern-minded and capitalist and who played a key role in changing China. The interesting thing in Korea is despite the cultural differences between North and South, there is a tremendously strong sense of Korean national identity and nationalism. If you try to uh, mock North Koreans for their sometimes very bizarre behavior in South Korea, you'll get a very bad reaction. People will be upset that other Koreans could behave in the way that you're describing. So I don't think we should discount that. Koreans really do want to find a way to reunite and they're actually talking about how to do that now for the first time in many, many years.
3: And Professor Tan, how do you think the United States is going to be involved with this going forward? Is this going to be a, a joint effort with the United Nations? Do you think that uh, we'll be acting on this alone or will Russia and China get involved and in, how how do you see this playing out?
1: I think it could be a US led multilateral effort where the US has the most cards to play in regards to China, who in turn has the most cards to play in regards to North Korea. And I also think that the positive side where there's a sharpening of the choice of a very bleak future versus a very positive one, the sharpening of that fork in the road as it's communicated and as it's acted upon in ways to North Korea is the sort of choice that needs to be presented to them to encourage them to go in the better direction.
3: We haven't really talked much about the security guarantees that that the United States has offered. Ambassador Freeman said that, you know, Kim Jong-un was afraid for his life. It sounds like we've given up a few things and we're gonna provide North Korea a few things to move this forward. Is that a correct characterization? Are we gonna protect Kim Jong-un?
0: I don't think so. Um, I think he's trying to create circumstances which will make the survival of his regime and his own safety possible. Frankly, after our behavior internationally uh, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, uh, I don't think anybody would take uh, guarantees against an American effort at regime change seriously. You have to provide concrete circumstances in which events are moving uh, in the direction of safety to be convincing Uh, Mr. Trump, I think, very cleverly addressed uh, the fears of North Korea, the attitudes. Uh, He didn't address nuclear capabilities in North Korea, uh, but he tried to be convincing in reducing North Korean fear that we would attempt regime change. And I think that's good enough for now. But what we need to watch is the next set of bilateral meetings between North and South Korea. And by the way, the Russians are already in this. There is now an active planning program for a gas pipeline from Russia through North Korea and South Korea to Japan. And when I say active planning, I mean North and South Korea and the Russians are all meeting together on this. It's important to remember that as central as we are to many problems, we're not always central to every problem. And I think, frankly, we've been flanked on this issue.
3: Professor Tan, how much are United States businesses involved in South Korea? And do you see this uh, the summit meeting as a means to get more involved? Or as Ambassador Freeman said, do you think that we'll be seeing uh, Korea pull on some of the outside Koreans around the world to help it begin this task of moving closer together?
1: U.S. businesses are very involved with South Korea. And that has been true for a long time now. When the Korean War ended, South Korea was the second poorest country on the planet. And uh, the U.S. has played the biggest role in helping, the biggest external role, that is, in helping uh, South Korea to recover from the rubble of the Korean War. And so after the WTO trips were implemented, there was even more involvement in uh, South Korea. Uh, in terms of the businesses and such because things like law firms and other things like that were opened up um, through the trips. And there was also the free trade agreement between South Korea and the U.S., which is uh, in the process of being renegotiated in ways. There have already been certain adjustments. For example, the general steel tariff that has been put up by the U.S., Uh, There has been a waiver given to South Korea, and that is important to South Korea because South Korea has the largest steel company in the world, POSCO, uh, inside there. Um, But there are also other things in regards to cars, for example, and uh, and various other trade-related matters that are ongoing. I think there's also a desire by the current administration for South Korea to pay for more of its own defense. Um, that is not uh, currently popular in South Korea, but uh, that is something that is uh, currently being pursued as well. But it's been a very close, extensive, deep relationship, business and otherwise, uh, between South Korea and the United States.
3: Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to wrap up with your final thoughts and perhaps address what you see as a future for uh, U.S. and North Korea relations, and then provide, if you'd like, your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you with further questions. Ambassador Freeman, we'll turn it over to you first. I think
0: that peace between Koreans has emerged as the prerequisite for the elimination of North Korea's, moderately credible nuclear deterrent against the United States. And therefore, uh, the real action is going to come at Panmunjom and the meetings between Mr. Moon and Mr. Kim and their subordinates. Uh, Just the other day, two days after the Singapore summit, there was a meeting between the defense officials of the two sides, something which had not happened uh, ever. And if there is progress made toward a reduction of tensions, toward rapprochement towards some some sort of economic uh, cooperation and uh, maybe even mutual balanced force reductions, which they've been talking about, uh, then I think uh, North Korea will not feel the need uh, to protect itself against the United States because the United States will not be uh, aligned against it uh, in a threatening posture from the North Korean point of view. Uh, so I think we may be seeing something really very fundamental, a major change in Northeast Asia, that reflects the post-post Cold War era more than anything
3: else. Great. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they find you?
0: Uh, with difficulty, but you can look on online and you can find me. And I have a website. It's chazfreemanalloneword.net, and there's a contact procedure on that website.
3: Thank you very much, and Professor Tan, your final thoughts and wrap up about the future of the United States and North Korea as well as your contact information, please
1: like Ambassador Friedman, I would love to see the peaceful reunification of the Koreas. that would be a tremendous solution in many respects for many of the parties, not least of all the to, to Koreas themselves. I do actually think that given the track record of North Korean deception, North Korean gross and systematic violations of human rights, uh, North Korea not fulfilling past promises to denuclearize and so forth, that it is necessary to take a high-pressure approach that also gives a way out that would be very beneficial And to encourage North Korea to go in the more beneficial direction, I think a part of that can be the possibility of prosecution of the North Korean leadership is something that uh, should not be left out of this. Because I believe that when human rights are spoken about together with the security issues, that you actually increase the chances of solving either or both, ideally both. And so I do think it's very important to continue uh, in that vein because I've not seen any indication that I can detect that North Korea will deviate from its past patterns of deception and unwillingness to fulfill their side of agreements that are made. And so if they are not strongly induced to do so, I am actually quite skeptical that they will do so and i could be reached um m101 at niu.edu and you can find that on my biographical sketch on the northern illinois university website
3: Great, and thank you, gentlemen, both very much, Ambassador Freeman and Professor Morse Tan for participating in today's show. It was a wonderful discussion, learned a lot. We'd also like to make a special thanks to Carla Freeman. She's the Associate Research Professor and Executive Director of the SAIS Foreign Policy Institute at Johns Hopkins for connecting us with Ambassador Freeman. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi is off today. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer
2: to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.